Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. I am joined today by Dr. Alex Trillin, thoracic medical oncologist and chief of early drug development at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. You'll recognize his name as lead author of multiple New England Journal articles. I am not exaggerating when I say that Alex is a global authority in the world of targeted therapy for lung cancer and has played a direct role in the development and approval of multiple drugs in just the past few years. He has led efforts targeting MET-Exxon 14 skip mutations, NTRAC fusions, most recently NRG1 fusions, and today's topic, red fusions. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Stephen. And that was uh, such a kind introduction. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Alex, I think we first learn about RET early in medical school in the context of hereditary cancer syndromes, like multiple endocrine neoplasia. But in non-small cell lung cancer, RET refers to something a little different. Can you explain to the audience the significance of RET in lung cancer? Yeah, this is very important because we've known about RET for several decades now. And in fact, its role as a proto-oncogene is in the context of RET in the activated state being from RET mutations. And we know that these can occur in both a germline fashion or a somatic fashion in medullary thyroid cancers and the MEN syndromes like MEN2, for example, that you mentioned. But in lung cancer in particular, the event that we're looking for is a RET fusion. Now, there's also a parallel still to the thyroid world because these fusions were actually first identified in papillary thyroid cancers in solid tumors. Interestingly, the very first time it was identified was in human lymphoma DNA, but we know that it's really not a common event in heme malignancies. But these RET fusions, you should think of them as similar to ALK fusions, ROS1 fusions, where essentially the RET gene sits in the downstream three prime position. It maintains the kinase domain and it hooks up with a variety of different upstream partners. So the most common in lung cancer, for example, is KIF-IB RET versus in papillary thyroid cancers where CCDC6 and NCOA4 are more common partners. But in general, this leads to a constitutive activation of the RET receptor in the absence of ligand because the chimeric oncoprotein sits in the cytosol and that leads to oncogenic signaling and cancer growth. Alex, is this a common subtype of lung cancer? So relative to other events, it's certainly not the most common genotype. So we know, for example, that KRAS-G12C sensitizing EGFR mutations are much more common. The actual frequency of a RET fusion is in the order of about 1% to 2% of unselected non-small cell lung cancers, similar to what we see for ROS1 fusions and about half of what we see for ALK fusions. Now, a couple of years ago, you led with Dr. Galchi from Lucerne, a global registry characterizing patients with RET fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer. Personally, I will not get over the missed opportunity to call that the RET registry. Uh, but from that experience, <laughs> is there a certain phenotype that you associate with RET fusions? 
Yeah, absolutely. This was a, a great paper because it involved many investigators around the world, including Julian Maziers, uh, for example, uh, investigators from uh, other parts of Europe, Israel, Asia, and the United States, where we called together our experience with red fusion positive lung cancers. It was north of 160 cases. And we observed that similar to other drivers, like Alcross one fusions, EGFR mutations. Most patients with a RET fusion in their lung cancer are younger, within median age in the 60s. Most are never smokers, and the dominant histology is adenocarcinomas. But we should apply the same caveats to RET that we apply to other genome-driven lung cancers, because um, in that series, we saw that we shouldn't be biased towards these particular features. There was an 89-year-old, for example, in that data set, 10% of patients had a substantial smoking history. And in terms of histologies, we had patients with squamous cell lung cancer, for example, and some even with neuroendocrine features. So while there is a common phenotype, I think it's still underscores the importance of broadly sequencing to find these actionable drivers. And you know, on the molecular level, we again found that KFIB was the most common five prime partner, followed by CCDC6 and NC084. But the other thing we did was look at the activity of systemic therapy. And this um, is complementary to another paper we published about the activity of chemotherapy, either uh, pemetrexid uh, inclusive or just first-line chemotherapy in general, where on the GLORY registry, the response rate was north of 50%, progression-free survival approach eight months, and then highlighting just how well these patients can do survival-wise, the median overall survival was greater than a year, similar to more prolonged survival that we see with EGFR and ALK. So this was, I think, a very useful experience and just really highlights how we can come together to characterize a less common genotype and learn something. I think that that spirit of collaboration really is, is part of why ISLC is, is, is around. These are important to find. You mentioned these are actionable. RET is now very relevant in lung cancer because we have two selective RET inhibitors approved by the FDA. Can you tell us a little about the first drug approved here, selpercatinib, previously called LOXO-292? So the introduction of the selective RET inhibitors was a major drug development paradigm shift. And very briefly, prior to 2017, the older class of agents was characterized by these tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which were multi-kinase. So they had some modicum of activity against RET, but also hit a bunch of other things. And we can get into that a little bit later. But in mid-2017, we saw the introduction into the clinic with clinical trials of these drugs, like the Libretto 001 trial for selpercatinib, and we saw that the activity of, of these drugs uh, was investigated in addition to the safety. And uh, going to selpercatinib in particular, this data is already published in the New England Journal of Medicine. If you're interested, there's also a companion thyroid paper that looks at RET fusion positive papillary thyroid in addition to the RET mutant MTCs. But going back to lung, in treatment-naive patients, uh, it was almost 40 patients in that data set 
The ejected response rate was 85% by independent review, and the progression-free survival was not reached. And the data set also looked at platinum pretreated patients. Notably, those are patients who were heavily pretreated with other things. Some had gotten immunotherapy, which we can talk about later, the older TKIs like cabozatinib and vandetinib. And despite heavy pretreatment, the response rate was still almost 65% with a progression-free survival north of 16 months in about 105 patients. And the last thing I'll mention is that in that series, you'll also see that the drug has intracranial activity. And um, with a, a smaller N, the objective response rate in the CNS was north of 90%. And this is important, obviously, when we think about a drug that not only might have more tolerability because of the way it's designed, it's a more selective inhibitor, but also uh, has the ability to either treat CNS disease or, or prevent the acquisition thereof. And one interesting case we published that I want to call out is we had a patient, a young woman with a lung cancer uh, that had a ret fusion, who unfortunately developed symptomatic leptomeningeal disease, and that rendered her ineligible for a clinical trial. Thankfully, we were able to get an FDA-approved compassionate use uh, single-patient trial of salpercatinib, and she had a, a confirmed response to therapy with a dramatic clinical response within the first two weeks and a substantial clearing of her leptomeningeal disease. So I think, you know, we'll talk about the other agent in a second, but in general, we've seen the fruits of rational drug development and um, where that can take us in terms of improved activity, including the sanctuary site uh, and improved tolerability. Yeah, they're, they're well tolerated. They're very active. We have patients that are on treatment for, for years and we have more than one drug, as you mentioned, pralcetinib or BLU-667, also FDA approved. Can you tell us a little about that drug, maybe highlight any meaningful differences between these two approved agents? Yeah, so uh, this was the ARROW trial. And uh, this data was presented, for example, by Justin Gaynor from Mass General at ASCO. And um, the intent was the same. It was a trial that gave the drug for retin-dependent cancer, so also included MTCs and PTCs, but drilling down on the lung cancer cohort, there were almost 30 patients who were treatment-naive and north of 90 patients who were pretreated, and the response rates there were 66%, 55% respectively, with durable responses and the median progression-free survival not yet reached. And similarly, also the drug um, had activity in the CNS, the intracranial objective response rate was 56%, and the drug was characterized by also a good tolerability profile with a low rate of drug discontinuation for treatment-related adverse events. Alex, the responses we've seen, as you mentioned, dramatic, durable, but with a lot of targeted agents, we do eventually see acquired resistance. Do we know anything about resistance to these RET inhibitors? Oh, absolutely. And a lot of this data has come out recently. So Jess Lynn, Justin Gaynor from Mass General published a paper in Annals of Oncology. Vivek Sabaya from MD Anderson also did. And then recently, ISLAC featured the arrow resistance data set presented by Justin at the North American Conference on Lung Cancer. And rolling all of that data together, 
we do know that there is on-target resistance and there's off-target resistance to selective RET inhibition. And by on-target, we mean that there's a genomic event that arises that we think uh, implies that there's maintained dependence on the primary oncogene or RET. And that takes the form of these kinase domain mutations that occur on top of the fusion with a wild-type red kinase. And ones that have been um, published or presented include the solvent front mutation, GA10R, for example. The first paper was by Ben Solomon and uh, other investigators uh, that came in, uh, out in the JTO. There is also the hinge region mutation, the Y806 substitution, um, an ATP binding pocket roof uh, substitution, L730. But I think that if you zoom out, the big picture is that it seems like, at least in one data set, so the Arrow Prospective Resistance data set, the frequency of these uh, was relatively low. So if we think about resistance mutations for other fusion-positive cancers, sometimes after a uh, first-generation TKI, you can see on-target resistance in 50% of cases. But um, in just in series that was presented, of course, with other investigators, the frequency of a resistance mutation was about 12%. We still don't know why that happens. Um, it may be because uh, tumors uh, preferentially look to maybe activating other genes. And that's the second point here that we can also see off-target resistance. So we have observed MET amplification arise, similar to the acquisition of MET amplification in the context of EGFR um, or ROS1, for example, BRAF V600E, that hotspot has emerged, KRAS amplification. And we previously published a series with Jeff Oxnard and other investigators, Melissa Johnson from Sarah Cannon, on patients who had retfusion-positive lung cancers, they, on progression, were found to have MET amplification. And I'll call out that at least in one case, the, the MET copy number chain seems to have been there prior to treatment. So, you know, in some cancers, this may be lurking there as an event. It may be a, a small subclone. But the punchline of the paper was that uh, preclinically, we saw the activity of adding a MET inhibitor to suprocatinib. And actually, in that paper, there were patients treated with a combination of suprocatinib and crizotinib. And one, for example, had a 10-month response to therapy. So very interesting that um, these bypass um, activation mechanisms can occur, but also that maybe in a certain subset, there's the promise of coming in with combination therapy. The last thing I'll mention is that uh, another question in the resistance arena is whether or not we see histologic transformation. And we don't really have a lot of data yet. I personally haven't seen a report of an adenocarcinoma with a red fusion that on resistance undergoes small cell transformation or squamous cell transformation. And I will say that if you look at some of the prospective data sets, like uh, Libretto, for example, one patient of mine had a lung cancer with neuroendocrine morphology. So certainly that type of morphology doesn't preclude a response to therapy, which the patient had, the patient had durable disease control um, with uh, salpercatinib. But we have yet to see how uh, EMT morphologic transformation will play out in the uh, salpercatinib um, resistance world.
Are there new drugs or new inhibitors in development now? Yes. So we just heard about these new kinase domain mutations that we've found. Actually, not all of them are new because some like the L730 substitution have been identified as a mechanism of resistance to multi-kinase inhibitors with uh, activity against RET. But certainly, if you think the drug development paradigms for other fusion-positive lung cancers, um, for example, like ALKA-ROS1, a lot of the next-gen drugs have really focused on baking in activity against these kinase domain mutations. Um, and ones that you're concerned about uh, would be ones like the solvent front substitution, the GA10R, which again uh, is a reported mechanism of resistance to selective RET inhibitor therapy. And there's one drug that's already in clinical trials called TPX0046. It is an inhibitor of RET and other kinases like TRAC, FGFR, and SARC. But the um, interesting feature is that it also has activity against the solvent front mutation. Um, and so that trial has not read out yet. The protocol, the study is currently accruing. So we look forward to seeing that data and hopefully other agents also enter the clinic that have activity against resistance to these uh, selective first-generation agents. Now, you mentioned uh, a couple different targeted drugs. You mentioned chemotherapy. One thing you didn't mention was immunotherapy. I know that's going to come up. What do we know about immunotherapy in RET fusion on small cell lung cancer? Yeah, it's a super important question, especially given the enthusiasm for immune checkpoint inhibitors. And um, we and other investigators have looked at this. So uh, the series to look at would be the Immunotarget Registry, again, with Oliver Gauchi, Julian Maziers, and the other collaborators. And there was also a series that we published that looked at our IO experience with these red fusion-positive lung cancers. Bottom line is that we either see no responses or very few responses in red fusion-positive lung cancers when you give an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And I'll say that the vast majority of that data is single agent, you know, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, for example. In our series, the response rate was zero. And perhaps that's not surprising because in the same paper, we looked at things like PDL1 expression and tumor mutational burden. And what we found is that the immunophenotype of these RET fusion positive lung cancers um, is essentially characterized by the majority of patients, so 60, about 60% in our series, that did not have PDL1 expression, so zero. Um, and then it was 20% for one to 49%, and 20% about for the other uh, 50% or higher. And we also looked at TMB, and the TMB, consistent with what we know about mutational burden with other oncogene-driven lung cancers, many others, is that the median was lower than other lung cancers that did not have RET fusions. And just to go back to response to therapy, you know, we had patients certainly who had a TMB that was above the median uh, in the series who had primary progression on immunotherapy. And there was one case that was PDL1 high, so it was 50%. That I think was the only case in our series that had 
combination immunotherapy with ipilimumab and nivolumab. And unfortunately, that patient had primary disease progression. So what's the punchline here? I think occasionally you might stumble across a lung cancer that both harbors a red fusion, and maybe you know 20% of cases might be PDL1 high. But I think in my practice, my preference has been to shy away from giving single agent immune therapy for those patients. And of course, prioritize giving a RET inhibitor, a selective RET inhibitor. You know, there are two that are FDA approved that will be discussed. We're now trying to generate data on the activity of chemoimmunotherapy. Now that, you know, platinum doublet plus ICI plus maybe an anti-angiogenic are currently FDA approved. And we'll see whether or not the experience is different in that arena. But Maybe going back a little bit to toxicity, which we didn't discuss so much with the um, two selective approved uh, inhibitors, is that one thing to watch out for is that uh, there are some patients who after uh, immune therapy, for example, you know, they may have gotten it prior to the identification of the red fusion. There are cases of hypersensitivity uh, that was just uh, presented last year where uh, patients might develop an allergic reaction in the wake of having received prior immunomodulatory therapy with with seprocatinib, for example. Um, And that's a phenomenon that's not unfamiliar to us. We've seen this in the ALK world, in the EGFR world. Um, So I think that we just need to be cognizant um, of how we sequence these treatments for our patients, because for a certain subset, uh, your giving immune therapy may impact the tolerability of a, a selective TKI eventually. I mean, that's such an important point and, and something that's relatively new to oncology where, where the sequence really does matter. And you know, if you're starting off with immunotherapy, not only is it less likely to work, but you're making your, your subsequent path a lot harder to take and, and really affecting the toxicity profile. That's a great point. And when we talk about preference for these selective inhibitors, these drugs were approved relatively quickly, uh, you know, from, from the time the trials were launched to FDA approval into the clinic. And I think it's appropriately so. We, we've seen these responses are very high clinically. They're dramatic. They're very fast. They're durable. But this has not been an overnight success. You alluded to some of the earlier drugs, these less selective multi-kinase inhibitors that showed you know, some activity, but quite a bit more toxicity. And I think we were all happy to replace them with these selective inhibitors. People may not know that you were instrumental in almost all of these efforts. And uh, even as a fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering, you received an ISLC fellowship grant to study RET in lung cancer. And so uh, if I could just ask, what drove that initial interest in RET that's paid off so well? And can you tell us maybe a little about those early research days? Yeah, as a fellow, I was really enthralled with the whole prospect of genome-driven therapy. And obviously, that was coming in at a time where EGFR, ALK were, you know, the dominant things we were studying, even though we had discovered that there were certainly other targets that we're aware of today that are matched to active therapies. But red fusions were discovered in late 2011 when I was still a fellow. And with Nair Rizvi, my mentor at the time, we mounted the first prospective trial of a multi-kinase inhibitor, cabozatinib, that was published in Lancet Oncology, demonstrated proof of concept activity of these multi-kinase agents. But 
we did learn that the response rates were much more modest than those that I mentioned for salpercatinib and pralcetinib in that series, for example, of 26 patients in response-evaluable um, cases, the objective response rate was 28%. Progression-free survival was 5.5 months. But to your point, we did see substantial toxicity, and that's a liability of a lot of these MKIs having activity against VEGFR2 or KDR, which you know, in the design of pralcetinib and salpercatinib was really um, separated from the activity uh, against RET, for example. And that manifested as things like hand-foot syndrome, um, substantial hypertension, so much so that kind of an integrated metric for this could be the rate of dose modification, which occurred in almost 75% of cases on that trial. You know, this grant from ISLAC was obviously instrumental in understanding this older class of agents, looking at things like resistance. And in fact, that led me down the path of further investigating RET. And, you know, you were part of this trial as well of another multi-kinase inhibitor, RxDx105, which we explored somewhat more selective, but not really to the same degree as salpercatinib and pralcetinib. And in that trial that's published in uh, Cancer Discovery, we also saw modest responses. And actually, an interesting observation in the multi-kinase world is it seems like the activity seemed to cluster in the non-KIF-5B RET fusions um, versus KIF-5B. We have not seen that for salpercatinib and pralcetinib, so it's still unclear what mediates that. But I'm, I'm again, very happy that um, this support was given to me as a fellow. It certainly pushed me to continue investigating RET as an attending and continue to pursue early drug development, uh, which is the other service that I'm part of in the hospital. And I think that we, we've seen the, the fruits of that with these newer agents. You know, we toxicity-wise, I think these drugs are far and away the newer agents, uh, much more tolerable with very low uh, rates of, of dose modification. I'll briefly mention just, you know, on a practical level, since these drugs are out there, that things to watch out for include dry mouth, for example, that's come up with salpercatinib, um, transaminitis for both drugs, mild hypertension. Interestingly, maybe the drugs have been dosed up so much so that they're at a level where they're tickling KDR, VEGFR2. And then there are interesting rare cases of um, ret mutant um, cancers that had tumor lysis syndrome, which I have not seen in a lung cancer case. And uh, before I uh, come off the topic, the last thing I'll say is there's some anemia, neutropenia that's been noted with um, pralcetinib. Uh, but overall, again, both drugs, they've been uh, a win, really, in terms of uh, chronic uh, dosing and, and, and tolerability. Yeah, this is such such important work, and it sounds like you were on the targeted path early on from what you saw. You know, if we digress a little from RET, can you maybe share with the audience a little about that path that led you to lung cancer specifically? Yeah, so you know, all of this really included very good mentorship. I think that when I was a fellow rotating through the different services, one criterion of mine was seeking out a group that had a very strong mentorship structure. I mentioned Naya Rizvi was my first mentor, and then Mark Chris took over after um, Naya went to Columbia. But in addition to that, in parallel, I think just the 
excitement around developing these oral agents for patients with um, oncogene-driven cancers has really led to a lot of other successes. So I'm glad that even though initially we thought these were rare events, when you add up the cases around the world, these uh, cancers um, uh, constitute a substantial number of annual diagnoses. So, you know, the estimate, the conservative estimate, for example, for a retrofusion would be about 10,000 cases a year, you know, and, and that's not a small number. And I think that since then, as part of the early drug development service, we've really looked to push the envelope by moving in a tumor agnostic um, basket trial type studies where we're exploring the activity of a drug regardless of what the cancer looks like under the microscope. And we've seen the fruits of that in the approval, for example, of the TRAC inhibitors for NTRAC fusion positive cancers of any histology. And and so I, I think things are moving forward very rapidly. And as I intimated earlier on, uh, drug development has also caught on to many of the major mechanisms of mechanisms of resistance, designed these next generation drugs that are also now in the clinic. And this provides a lot of hope for patients because we certainly know that the timeline to getting a drug across the regulatory finish line and approval in multiple practice environments has shortened compared to before. But not only that, we're already thinking of what the next what's the next step? For someone that progresses on one of these TKIs, you know, is it a next-gen drug? Is it combinations? And I think that uh, hopefully it'll continue to open up doors for our patients who have these cancers. Very, very well put. Alex, last question. I know you've trained at Juilliard. Uh, You've even performed at the Met. Uh, So to move out of the clinic, can you tell me when when did you develop an interest in, in singing, performing? Is that still a part of your life? So, yeah, this is something that started earlier on. I've always been kind of interested in music, and it really started with being part of a professional theater company in the Philippines where, you know, obviously there are both straight plays um, and um, musical theater pieces. That's where the interest started. And then in med school, I had become involved with choral conducting and became the choir master for actually the university choir of my medical school, the University of the Philippines. And then I thought, you know, it would be a shame to throw that all away when I got the residency position at St. Luke's Roosevelt in Manhattan, which was close to Juilliard. And so I applied. They have something called the evening division, um, which um, I auditioned for, I got into, you know, I took voice and uh, some theory classes. And, you know, that was, that was a wonderful opportunity, because it also opened the door to joining the Juilliard Choral Union. And that gig at the Met was uh, really a performance where we were with Kristen Chenoweth, um, who's one of the stars of the Broadway musical Wicked. And we did a few songs with her, uh, obviously, as you know, backup for Kristen Chenoweth. But we also had other concerts with, um, uh, for example, Edina Menzel and Jason Robert Brown. And I, I thankfully had much more time back in the day and was able to do much more of that. But now I think, you know, I'm more kind of a, a casual singer and uh, have been relegated to, to karaoke, <laughs> which is still very entertaining. But I, I certainly miss the, the old days where, where I did much more of this. 
Oh, Alex, yeah, this has been great. You know, I want to thank you, Alex, for your time, for your insights. I just want to thank the audience for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, uh, the official ISLC podcast. I hope you'll tune in on the first and third Mondays of every month to give us a listen. Don't forget to like the podcast and to share it with your colleagues and friends. Uh, we're going to close here. Stay safe. Uh, be well. Thanks again, Alex. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 